Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to support the communities of plants and people and places that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Rose Ramirez is a California native plant gardener, basket weaver, photographer, and educator of Chumash descent. Deborah Small is an artist, photographer, and professor at the School of the Arts at California State University, San Marcos. In 2010, the California legislature designated the third week of April as California Native Plant Week. In preparation for this week of botanical biodiversity celebration in the California Floristic Province, this week I'm joined by Rose and Deborah, the co-founders of a new educational and advocacy initiative on behalf of California's iconic native white sage, Salvia apiana sacred to the indigenous cultures of what is known as Southern California and Baja California. Rose and Deborah join me this week in preparation for this week of celebration of all of our native plants wherever we may garden. Welcome to the program, Rose and Deborah. I am so pleased to be in conversation with you both. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Let's start with you, Rose. Share with listeners your relationship with plants right now. For the last maybe 10 years or so, I have been creating as much native plant landscape as I can. And I primarily do that so that I can have the natural beauty of California around me all the time so that I can have access to native plants that I use in my daily life. And I am very concerned about climate change, habitat loss, declining species of birds, insects, and and more. And I focus on the native plant side of my landscaping so I can try to give the land back something um, that we have, since the beginning of humans, we have depended upon. And uh, so much is in peril now related to land and how we treat land and our environment and our air and our water, that this is one way I am able to concretely give something back to help curb climate change, do what I can as an individual. We have a couple of properties. One is my husband's land allotment on the Pichanga Indian Reservation. And the land there was divided up you know, many years ago by the federal government for farming, in particular, the people who had to live there and were in some cases not even allowed to leave, that in doing so, it was Western agriculture that was being promoted. So land allotments very often had no native plants on them, particularly there 
I have been growing our basketry plants. I have been with the California Indian Basket Weavers since they were founded. And I try to maintain some attachment to the basketry work. So I've been restoring the landscape essentially to native plants there, concentrating on basketry plants. Rose and her husband also bought a piece of land in northern San Diego County, where they're tending existing native oaks and restoring areas of desert and chaparral, as well as growing vegetable and flower gardens and orchard fruit trees. For Rose, it's important to have the native and non-native plants integrated together to provide habitat for wildlife, as well as an array of culturally important foods and beauty. I asked Deborah to also share her current relationship with plants. Well, I, I live in the WUI, and um, that's the Wildland Urban Interface. And right now, that's what I'm taking very seriously. Um, so in a way, in my garden, I live in the backcountry in San Diego County, North San Diego County. So what I'm really looking at with my garden, quite a bit of land, um, is you know how to make it as fire retardant as possible. And that doesn't mean fire resistant, which is really more about um, which plants, or sometimes it's about which plants you know can withstand fire and come back later after a fire you know sweeps through. But I'm really interested if there's some kinds of things that we can do in our gardens that make um, our land more fire retardant. And I'm working with three particular native plants. Like Rose, I'm really wanting to focus mostly on the native plants, but I'm working with uh, agaves and with dudleyas and with the puntia. It's really been really interesting for me. I do a lot of research. I'm really influenced by people like Gary Nabhan, who wrote a book about farming in a hotter, drier climate. I think Mike Evans of Tree of Life Nursery has really influenced me. And he looks to the south, he looks to Baja for plants also for our hotter, drier climate. And um, there was one day I came home and um, I was driving and it was 117, and that was two years ago, and that only happened once, but but the oaks immediately responded by, you know, the next, it seemed almost the next day they were half, the leaves were half brown and half green, and that was, you know, that was throughout our county and actually probably other places as well. So I, this is, that's actually, I think, that moment when I was compelled to really work on, you know, this idea of how do we live in the climate with climate change, and how do we live on our land Deborah was born in Ohio and lived there until she was in high school and her family moved to Pennsylvania. Her father was an amazing vegetable gardener and her aunt, her father's eldest sister of 11 children, grew beautiful flowers, gladiolas and hollyhocks, which she shared with their entire community. Deborah remembers feeling like Alice in Wonderland in this garden. Both her father and her aunt were organic gardeners without knowing there was actually any other way to be. As an adult, Deborah felt pulled to California, where as an artist, she became involved with Native American artists. In 1987, she worked with James Luna, a Lusania artist, on a project they called The Alteration of History, trying to raise awareness about the destructive mission legacy in California and also in part to protest the cultural celebration to say nothing of beatification of unique. Unipero Sarah. After Unipero Sarah was beatified, the group also put together an exhibit called California Days, D-A-Z-E. For Deborah, plants came a little bit later. Fast forward to around probably 2003 or so. Um, I was working in my school and 
I ended up meeting a woman named Diana Caudell, and she gave a lecture at our school and talked about how the juncus was impossible to find. That's a juncus textilis. It's a basketry plant. So she gave this lecture and she was talking about because of climate change, because of overdevelopment, because of all these reasons, not having their own reservation. She said it was really hard to find access. And I thought, well, that's that's a plant I walk right by in the back country where I live. And I think that's BLM land. So I, I called her up and I said, Diana, I think I know where there's some juncus. So she was out at my house within 30 minutes. Um, probably a 35 minute drive. But anyway, <laughs> she was very excited. And it turned out to be junk as textiles. I wasn't sure. From there, Deborah's relationship with the basketry artists deepened, and she became enmeshed in their community, which is where she met Rose. It was a perfect confluence of art and culture and plant habitat for Deborah. Rose's childhood garden foreshadows her adult garden. She grew up in what she describes as a barrio on vestigial avocado orchards in Pico Rivera of Los Angeles County, where her family tended edible nopales, loquats, and more. In a way, it was a wonderful yard because it had lots of plants. There were little fruit trees, apricots, peaches, grapes. We had these things, uh, some of them planted by my parents. Um, some were there when they acquired the property. So I think because of that alone, plants are a necessity in my life. They brought joy. They brought birds. They gave us food, you know, the pleasure of picking fruit off of a tree and eating it. If I was to look at who would have influenced me, my grandmother, of course, would be the first person, but It wasn't so much on plants, but it was on culture. I grew up in a home where my father was California, Indian, Spanish. He even had the African ancestry that goes back to people who came up under Spain. And my mother was Anglo, but she had fallen in love with this Spanish kind of almost mythology around California. And my grandmother used to try to teach us Spanish. My father would not allow it. So she would, it was kind of a subversive thing she would do when he wasn't around. She would talk to us and tell us stories. She would try to get us to speak the language. But these were things we couldn't do in front of my father because my father had really a horrible experience growing up as a dark bilingual man in California. It was pretty brutal. He didn't want us to have that experience. So my grandmother implanting the cultural ideas, the stories, the attachment to California, the attachment to the land there always made me want to know more about that. So as I got older, I was looking for cultural relationships with other Native people and I'd find those along the way. When I went to the university, I did. that's when I found groups of Native people interacting. And I ran into the basket weavers at uh, UC Santa Cruz. And that right there took me on a path to discovering more about the basketry because I just fell in love with it. So I found I had a cousin on the Santa Inez Indian Reservation. And I sought her out and learned basketry from her and other cultural arts. 
This was about 1990, in the aftermath of the very destructive Loma Prieta earthquake, which Rose shares was a very unsettled time throughout the region. But her learning of basketry from her cousin opened up an entirely new, grounded world of native plants and her own cultural connection to them. Learning the basketry from her, what the plant materials were, how to gather, how to process, that is where native plants, I just, I think it was just like this, your mind blown a little bit. I found it fascinating that there would be some that were used for cordage, some were used for medicine, some were for the hummingbirds, so you make sure the hummingbirds come to your yard. So basketry plants led me into all these other plants because basketry is related to food because they're the receptacles of food. You use them in processing acorn, you use them in gathering food, you might have a basket you need to have cordage for, and cordage is a different plant. Maybe there's several plants. It was amazing to me. And so I started to look for these plants more. I learned about them. I got books about them. I talked to people about them. And I think within the California Basket Weavers Association, a lot of that was shared with all these different groups, cultural traditions of California were being shared of what materials they used, how they processed them. The information about the native foods was often shared, how they gathered certain seeds over here and how they did this over there and how they made a gathering basket or a winnowing basket or a burden basket. And it was just so related. Most of the plants you grow up with are not native plants. And you have to say, well, why is that? Part of it is development, but part of it is all of the people who live there that don't have traditions to those native plants aren't growing them. This is Cultivating Place. Rose Ramirez is a California native plant gardener, basket weaver, photographer, and educator of Chumash descent. Deborah Small is an artist, photographer, and professor at the School of the Arts at California State University, San Marcos. Rose and Deborah have been working on an endeavor known as Saging the World, including a documentary film about the native and sacred white sage and its long cultural history in Southern and Baja California. We'll be back for more after a break with Rose and Deborah. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. CNPS is proud to be working in support of the indigenous-led initiative Saging the World. Metric tons of white sage are illegally, unethically, and violently poached annually to supply an international demand. Rose Ramirez and Deborah Small, authors of the Ethnobotany Project and White Sage Advocates, say it's time to sage the world, to boycott wildcrafted sage products, to grow native plants like white sage for our own uses, and to reorient our perspectives on plants from seeing them as resources to valuing them as loving interdependent relationships. For more information on how you can support this initiative, please visit cnps.org forward slash conservation forward slash white hyphen sage. 
Hey, it's Jennifer. As I listen to Rose and Deborah speak about their many years of advocacy work around native plants and cultures, I am reminded how, as gardeners, we live in the social and economic systems that sometimes create the problems that we are trying to garden and grow over. And us envisioning and regenerating new ways forward is always about thinking above and beyond with all of our peripheral vision and imagination. It is about seeding within the cracks of the systems we live with to grow something new out of these somethings old. It is not easy and it is generally not quick work, but it is absolutely worth considering, conceiving, and cultivating. In 2007, artists and activists Rose Ramirez and Deborah Small began a collaboration they called the Ethnobotany Project, photographing and collecting life cycles and histories of native plants of cultural significance to the native people of Southern California. This project evolved into a 2010 calendar highlighting the cultural importance of 12 native plants, and then into a 2018 book highlighting the native growing and uses of an additional 12 plants, one of which was native white sage. The book, designed by Tima Lota Link and published by Malki Museum Press, included nearly 30 contributions by indigenous native plant people. During their work on the book, Rose and Deborah became aware of the precipitous loss of native white sage, loss of its habitat and growing grounds to development, to climate change, and most disturbingly, loss of metric tons of the plants themselves to predatory poaching pressure on the plant. To offset this loss of white sage, Deborah and Rose, working with Tongva elder and educator Barbara Drake, undertook an initiative called Saging the World, asking people around the world to move away from smudging with illegally wild-harvested white sage and toward growing the plant itself. As we come back, Rose and Deborah share more about the beginning of the project. Deborah and I were giving ethnobotany talks. And sometimes that would involve some of the people we have been interviewing. And one of the most important people was Barbara Drake, the Tongva elder. She would get excited if something was ready to harvest or if she had been invited to uh, collect plants because they were going to maybe develop an area or move um, a sidewalk over, and she would call us and ask us if we wanted to help. And of course, we did. We always wanted to help Barbara. We loved being with her. And one of the places that asked her to, to come and gather was, well, at the time, Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden, which is now California Botanic Garden. And she was so honored that one of these native plant places invited her in 
Native people haven't always been invited in to lands that are protected or where native plants are grown for the general population to view. A lot of times native people aren't included in that, but Barbara was brought in and developed a good relationship. And we all did with uh, David Bryant, who was working there at the time. And we developed this great relationship of talking about plants, teaching about plants, gathering some of the plants when they were ready for needs. At one point, Barbara said to us that she was concerned. She heard that there was going to be expanding housing near the Etiwanda Preserve, and it concerned her. And she spoke to us about it, and we said we would look into it. Sacred White Sage is one of 19 native salvias in the California Floristic Province, naturally growing in a very prescribed region of Southern California, from Santa Barbara down to Northern Baja, California, Mexico. It's a keystone plant species of the coastal sage scrub habitat, as well as being integral to the daily and ceremonial lives of indigenous peoples of this same region. The 1,200-acre North Etiwanda Preserve, established in 1998 by San Bernardino County, is a habitat preservation area created for the protection of the rare River Cidian alluvial fan sage scrub community, home to numerous sensitive species, including white sage. Barbara Drake, who passed in November of 2020, provided knowledge and important concerns to Deborah and Rose. She was integral to the growth of their Saging the World initiative to continue to increase awareness and protections, encouraging people to cultivate meaningful plants in their own gardens. Barbara provided knowledge and information not only to Rose and Deborah, but also to her many students. It was based on Barbara's concerns that Deborah started researching more about what was happening with the White Sage and what Rose and Deborah might be able to do about it. We saw more and more, you know, people were posting things like, oh, Walmart's selling White Sage now. And and, and then someone else would say, oh, it's on Etsy. And on the internet, you put in, um, you know, sage sticks or sta- sage bundles or whatever, and hundreds of thousands of links would come up. It was amazing. So you start to see in this rabbit hole, this metamorphosis from something that's a sacred plant, a prayer plant, a ceremonial plant into a global commodity. And the more we look, the more we um, started to see there was, a, there was a company called Juniper Ridge, and they had a store locator, and they were selling white sage lotions, potions, smudge sticks, everything, you know, bags of loose sage. And they were said they were gathering everything from the, the wilds of the West Coast. That was sort of their mantra. And but their store locators showed showed stores all over the globe that white sage is so popular. The inter, the demand is international and it seems worse. And we thought people need to know this because we talked to people and they really had no idea. And the truth is when before we went down those rabbit holes, we didn't realize how pervasive, you know, and then there's also things like white sage kits and the kits involve abalone and the kits involve feathers and and and, and using abalone shells that are probably poached as well so there's two species of the seven that are endangered three are of critical concern so just the idea of the kits it's just like one thing on top of another that's really incredibly disrespectful and really heartbreaking for native people to see that cultural appropriation of, of their ceremonial practices in june 2018 
four people were arrested for the illegal poaching of more than 400 pounds of white sage on the preserve. Yeah, there was an image in the newspaper of four or five duffel bags stuffed with sage and it's leaning against a sheriff's car. It turned out they were, you know, people who were really poor doing the dirty work of some profiteers of people. They were getting paid 25 cents to a dollar a pound, whereas it would actually sell for 20 to 30 dollars per pound. So I think that was so troubling to see this and to have this evidence. And the fact that there was this much poaching going on in a preserve, a region that was supposed to be protected, one of the very few places in the world, I guess, that has this River City and alluvial fan sage scrub. So not only is the white sage being decimated, but the whole plant community is being decimated. And I think that really, really bothered us that this is in a preserve. What's happening in the rest of California and Baja. And we got some of those answers, actually, when we were doing the documentary. Maybe you could share the story of how you came to the name for the project. The name is actually from um, an interview we did with our friend Tima Lotalink, and she had talked about how at one point wildfire went through their traditional gathering area, and she was very upset about that. So she was talking to her uncle, and her uncle said, oh, it's okay. Anyway, the, you know, the world just needs saging off right now. And, you know, he was seeing that as, you know, you know, the world's a little out of balance. This was a few years ago, obviously. And now the world is so much more out of balance. So, Tell us about uh, how you have tried to incorporate addressing some of these problems in what saging the world is. Like describe the project and its different arms and facets. Let's start with you, Rose. When we discovered how serious the poaching was, And we discovered how much was being sold on the internet and it was going all over the world. David Bryant from a California Botanic Garden, Barbara Drake, Deborah, and myself, we tried to brainstorm about what could we do? What could we possibly do? I knew, and we had heard from some of the people when we first interviewed about White Sage, just for the ethnobotanical part of it, that. Native people had been trying to get people to stop culturally appropriating white sage for many decades and very little attention, especially with the rise of the social media and the internet, they were really drowned out. We saw that cultural appropriation was a big part of why poaching was increasing. One of the things that Barbara Drake really wanted to do was contact James Ramos, who is assembly member. His area includes the Etiwanda Preserve. And so we got together, we wrote a letter. We did an article for news from Native California because we wanted to make sure California Native people were also aware that this was happening on this level. Deborah and I were giving talks up until COVID. But really, that is so small impact compared to a documentary. And that's what we came up with, that we needed somehow to make really visual the problems and how devastating it was. We needed to put this all in a package for people because it seems people needed that. They needed to see the benefits of this plant the beauty of this plant, the importance of this plant, especially to the Native people. And then we needed to see how it was being abused by the poaching, by the 
the thousands of places on the internet that it was being sold is being sold where they clearly had no qualms about saying it was wild harvested and wild crafted from the hills of California. Deborah and Rose's first article about their sage work, entitled Saging the World, was published in the news from Native California's spring 2020 issue. They opened the article with several quotes, including one from Barbara Drake, in which she said, White sage is sacred. White sage is used as a prayer plant. Therefore, we do not sell white sage. If you need it as a medicine, we are going to give it to you. With the forced assimilation and relocation of many Native Americans in the first part of the 1900s, the use of ceremonial and sacred white sage traveled with them. Ironically, the article notes that non-Native people have been using white sage in pseudo-Native ceremony at least since the 1960s, while Native Americans themselves were not allowed to legally practice their own religions until the Native American Religious Freedom Act was passed in 1978. As Rose and Deborah began working on the documentary project in 2020, one of the questions they were posing was, where is this plant being grown? Is it being cultivated for commercial use? How can we get people to grow it for themselves? We only found one uh, major grower, and that was Sage Winds Farm in eastern San Diego County near Hakumba. They had been growing for about 15 years and have, have are certified organic. And that was such a tremendous find to us. And we went and interviewed them and, and saw them. And then there are a few medicinal um, herbal sellers that have been growing, but they're much smaller quantities so far. We do think it's going to start increasing with more of the information that goes out. But we realized if the two acres at Sagewind Farms is supplying, you know, how much, not very much, compared to this entire global market, we just know by all our research, we just couldn't get people to tell us where they were sourcing their white sage. We contacted seller after seller, particularly these herbal sellers or the new age kind of products. Even Juniper Ridge, we would try to get this information from them and they would not be able to give us a location where the white sage had been grown for commercial purposes. The documentary, Saging the World, is trying to articulate and encompass all of these different aspects. And it is now a co-production with CNPS, the California Native Plant Society, where David Bryant is, what is Saging the World? asking the world to do? I think that probably the most important thing we're asking people, and I think that the, the thing that would be obviously the most helpful would be for everyone who can be cultivating white sage to do that, to cultivate it. And obviously it doesn't grow in every climate, but at least here in California, people can grow it pretty easily. So instead of, you know, purchasing it on someone, any one of these sites that are available to you to cultivate the plant, to create a relationship with that plant. 
And then hopefully the, the hope is, of course, that after you start with one plant like white sage, that you'll be become interested in what the co-associates are of the white, the white sage and want to be planting more. But I think we're really pushing cultivation. That's really important to us. And, and, and also, you know, trying to create a more respectful relationship with plants or, or a relationship at all. I think a lot of times that idea of having a relationship with plants is, is something new to people and trying to, you know, learn that through the white sage in a way. There's other things, of course, we're asking people to boycott any products made from wildcrafted sage, to really know where their source is, to really investigate their source for their sage. And if they can't find out, people won't tell them where they are, you know, sourcing their sage, then not to purchase any kinds of sage products from, from uh, those folks. Those would be three things we, we're really wanting. But, I, I, you know, I think the ultimate goal is for people to have a much more um, close relationship with their own local native plants, wherever they are. This is Cultivating Place. Rose Ramirez is a California native plant gardener, basket weaver, photographer, and educator of Chumash descent. Deborah Small is an artist, photographer, and professor at the School of the Arts at California State University, San Marcos. The two are co-founders of a native plant and cultural advocacy initiative known as Saging the World. We'll be back for more from Rose and Deborah. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Continuing to riff off of this idea of the systems we live inside of and how we grow beyond them, there is complexity to considering, for instance, how to protect the white sage without impeding Native people's care and access and cultural belonging to it how to envision ways in which the plant can be grown and tended and harvested with care and sent out into the world in all of its health and abundance with the proceeds from this distribution being reinvested into the native communities for whom it is sacred without violating their sacred agreements between the people and their plant. These are dilemmas built into our current worldview and structure. But again, we are gardeners, we are smart, and we are persistent. We can think and seed and grow our way beyond these dilemmas to better answers, to better ways forward. Part of that rethinking is just as Rose and Deborah remind us, starting right where we are as consumers and gardeners thinking about what we buy, where what we buy comes from, thinking about and researching what we are growing and what we are growing's whole story. From the cultural names and values associated with the plants we love to the growers of those plants and the ways in which they are grown, we too have a vote. We vote and grow the world with every dollar we spend or invest in others, with every seed we sow and share forward with others. Don't ever forget this. This is our agency. This is our greatest power. This interdependent growth. In preparation for California Native Plant Week coming up the third week of April, 
This week, we're in conversation with Rose Ramirez, a California native plant gardener, basket weaver, photographer, and educator of Chumash descent, and Deborah Small, an artist, photographer, and professor at the School of Arts at California State University, San Marcos. The two are speaking with us about their native plant and cultural advocacy initiative known as Saging the World, working to raise awareness and action in order to offset the loss of California native white sage, whose habitat and growing grounds are being overtaken by development, climate change, and most disturbingly, by international cultural appropriation-driven predatory poaching pressure. As we come back, Rose and Deborah share more about the educational aspects of the initiative and the very delicate relationship between people and their culturally important plants. I would say that one of the biggest problems we have, in this country at least, is consumers who don't question where things come from, what impacts do the purchases they make have on people, on our water, our environment. And this is a prime example, the white sage, that it is so abused by the vendors. The vendors don't ask where their product they're going to sell is coming from. And then the consumer doesn't ask. And if they do, you know, I don't know if they get a straight answer uh, as to where the product comes from. The harm is to Native people, abuse of their culture, cultural appropriation. We understand that many people do not know where this plant comes from or even how important it is to Native people. We want the documentary to show people how they use this plant, how important it is to them, and how they are reacting to the poaching and to climate change. And we would like people to respect the use of this plant. There's so many myths and stereotypes being thrown into this whole thing. People do not know a lot about California Indian cultures. Some of them Some people have lived next to reservations their entire lives and know nothing about the people whose land they're on and whose, you know, where they live close to this tremendous culture, and they may not know anything about it. And this is paralleled by how many people live in the state of California and know so little about the huge biodiversity of the native plants who are integral to and have been tended by these native cultures over millennia. This is an opportunity for them to learn about the native peoples in their area, just as they should learn about the native plants in their area. And they should have respect for both. And where they can, they should either be better consumers or, like we say, by growing this plant, if you really want to use it, you should try to grow it, even if it's in a pot. Native people have had to, for generations, but even more recently, grow the plants that they have to use to maintain their cultural traditions, their medicines, their foods. A lot of us have to grow them close to our homes 
We have to grow them in yards or community gardens because habitat is disappearing through development and through climate change. The, if, if plants are suffering out there, they cannot be gathered. And if you purchase a plant like white sage and not knowing where it came from and a good chance, very good chance it came from poaching, this plant is not only would have all the negativity that you're trying to maybe remove from your space, it can actually be harmful because the way these plants are treated when they're poached is they're often put in these bags and they're in there for hours laying in the hot sun. They get moldy, they get mildewed. Then who knows before how long it is before they actually get wrapped and dried. Is it done properly? And you could be actually burning something that could be harmful to many people who have allergies or asthma. And the traditional way to gather plants is with care and respect that you cared for this plant, that you give this plant something back before you take it, that you respect the plant. The cultural appropriation is only taking what you see, the burning of it and smudging you don't have that other half of what the culture is doing with these plants. You don't have the growing of it, the respect. In your article on Saging the World for News from California, one of your interviewees notes that the devastation of the white sage is part and parcel of cultural genocide and completely contrary to the impulse that humans are acting on when they're looking for a plant of ceremony. One of the interviewees points out that you would not walk into a cathedral and pillage its holy vessels or holy water or communion wafers. And that really needs to change. People need to look at their use of these plants with uh, a whole different cultural lens, as we say, where they understand how it is supposed to be properly cared for. So if they want to use it, they can use it safely. But we would still ask that they don't try to imitate native culture. The abalone is used all over the world for things like burning sage. Abalone is endangered. Abalone is part, I know for my husband, Joe, his, he's from the Luiseno tribes in uh, Southern California. It's one of his California Indian ancestries. And their creation story has abalone in it. It's part of their very old belief system. And when people just wantingly buy an abalone shell, which hurts the abalone, and then they burn sage in it because she, they think this is the way to do it. They don't see the connection. They don't ask, what, why is it an abalone shell? For most people I know, they would want people to stop using it in a, na- a pseudo-native way. And if they do feel like they have to use it, whether it's for just they love it, the smell, then they should really try to grow it or buy it from a reputable source where they can verify that these people have grown it and not harvested it, harvested it from the wild. Again, in our very human longing for meaning and for connection, we're getting it wrong. And so there are so many ways we can get it more right. And that 
is to me the import like one of the important hearts of of what you are sharing and lifting up. Rose, can you share a little more? I know we talked about it in the beginning, but can you share a little more about the many ways in which the white sage is is sacred and used by the native cultures of its its indigenous region? Many plants that native people use in general are sacred, and they're sacred because they're necessary. They've given something to Native people, food, medicine, ceremony, even something they build a house with. So that is the basis, essentially, of what a sacred plant is. It's something that you're dependent upon and it gives you something. And white sage has the legacy of being used in very important ceremonies for many California Indian tribes. It is not the only sacred plant. Elderberry is considered very sacred. Yerba Santa is very sacred, very medicinal. They usually can go hand in hand. White sage is used for various kinds of ceremony, but it is also really common to be used in funeral related ceremony. Norma Mesa, who is Kumeyaay from Nehi in Baja, California, talked about how it was used uh, very often for funerals, but it was also used for calming children when there were events such as film uh, funerals. It was used for menopause. When she went through menopause, her mother was no longer with her. She had already passed on. So a sister of her mother's gave her the information about how to survive menopause and it was the white sage to drink a very light tea uh, with one sage leaf and um, it helped calm her and get through some of the more difficult times when she was going through it was used as a deodorant the seeds were used I would say they're not used quite as much anymore because sage is dwindling, but it was used very much for food, just like chia being gathered. A lot of the sage seeds are gathered for food or for flavoring. But now I would say most people will do it in a more of a ceremonial way as a a remembering. When it is flowering is the time you never gather it. And you have to let it go through its process of producing seeds so that there is a continuation of the plant. As you are sharing these many uses and this concept that the plants on whom these cultures were and are uh, interdependent for survival, you know, just as you uh, illustrated that you, you don't harvest when it's in flower because you need the seed set to create the next generation so that you can tend to those. So there is as Robin Wall Kimmerer has really tended this global awareness of this idea of reciprocity. One of the the statements that you and Deborah have made in relationship with this project is transforming our cultural lens or perspective on plants as resources uh, rather than relationships. Like this is one of the transformations you want to really help move forward in, in, in faster and more durable ways. 
so that the pe- you know people who might be buying this sage to use as a smudging or whatever you know whatever they are looking to use it for um, in a place that maybe can't grow a white sage the answer to that is to then cultivate a relationship with the plants on on which your ecosystem and the cultures there and your life itself is in relationship and on whom you depend whether for food or beauty or fragrance or medicinal and utilitarian purposes those are the plants who are going to be the most relational for you and therefore will be the most ceremonially healing, contributing to your life because you are hopefully contributing to their life. That's the key, not the exact plant and the exact shell that is somebody else's culture. We have um, interviewed Gerald Clark, who is Kawia. He is a professor of ethnic studies at UC Riverside, and he is an artist. And the way he describes cultural appropriation is taking something and not giving back. And I think this is very true with a lot of things that we do that has put us in this position with our climate, with the changes that we don't like that are coming is because we take and we don't give back. Some of the plants that are so medicinal grow in abundance in their natural habitat. And yet those places are being demolished. And these are medicines. This is where maybe uh, pharmaceuticals come from. But we do know that in our uh, native cultures, they've been using these medicines for thousands of years. These are all starting to be affected also by poaching. Yerba Santa, mugwort, Now, they grow in other places as well, different varieties, but white sage, yerba santa, elderberry, um, uh, the acorns, they're all being poached. Everything is being poached, and it's either either being sold or they are, uh, we have a large uh, forager uh, population, I guess, and That is affecting Native people's cultural traditions. It is affecting the environment because many people don't know how to gather or if they're gathering just to sell it, they're not maybe considering the impact. But when you see a plant that cures something or helps you get through an illness and you see it growing abundantly in a place, you would think that would be what you would consider protected area. You don't damage this area, you take care of this area. And that is what native people have tried to do for many generations and are finding it impossible these days because of, um, I guess, just a whole variety of issues, the poaching, the selling, the foraging, the climate change, uh, development, all of these things are are dwindling our our native landscape, and that land native landscape is absolutely uh, critical to native life. It's critical to everybody's life, really, because it supports the animals, the insects, the birds. It even helps with making sure water is clean. Putting these plants 
in a pot on your porch, in a window in your house, in your yard, in your garden, is really so satisfying to know you're contributing back to this environment that you have taken so much. Your house is on an area where there was once native plants. To be able to put something back and, and help it grow, and then you see the birds come and you see the native insects come, to me, that is a, a very satisfying feeling. Is there anything you would like to add to, to that sentiment, those sentiments uh, shared by Rose, Deborah? Doing all this work, I think maybe the for me, the most important thing I've been able to take away from working so much with Native people is really um, what something Gerald Clark also said. He said, you know, we have responsibilities and we have obligations to the plants, to the land, to the plant communities, really to the earth. And I think if we actually all felt that way, my God, we wouldn't have things like what, what are happening right now with our planet. If we really realize that we have a responsibility to give back but, or to take care of, to tend all those things, I think, um, and to really, I, I think it takes sometimes a while to wrap your head around that. Yeah, responsibility, obligations, right? So it, it, I think that affects me as a gardener. I think about that when I'm gardening, right? I can't just think about what I like about the garden. I have to think what, you know, how are the plants doing here? How are, how are all the... Um, the other species who are dependent on these plants, how are they doing? And I think I, I think that's um, for me. Though, and um, not only Gerald Clark uses those terms. I mean, Craig Torres uses the exact same words when he's sometimes talking about plants, and that's interesting. I mean, it's so fundamental. I think to who um, the native folks I've worked with, who they are, right? They have obligations and responsibilities, and that is that's really key. I think. Is there anything you would like to add? Just to see something really happen with white sage, and we already do see some effects. Um, we have been told that down at Itawanda, they may even start doing some additional, um, maybe, I don't know if they're going to hire more people or signage or what, but it looks like we're starting to see an impact. To me, if I was going to try to have a goal in my life, if I wanted to do something that I thought was very important, this is going to be right at the top of my list that I have worked on this. It's our planet. It's our, right. And it's our children and our grandchildren. And we have to be able to say we did something. We're trying to do something. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you and to share this project forward with my audience, who I hope will share it forward with everyone uh, they know and are in community with as well. Thank you. I Thank really you. appreciate it. <laughs> Rose Ramirez is a California native plant gardener, basket weaver, photographer, and educator of Chumash descent. Deborah Small is an artist, photographer, and professor at the School of the Arts at California State University, San Marcos. The two are co-founders of an educational and advocacy initiative known as Saging the World. 
Saging the World, the bilingual documentary directed by Rose, Deborah, and David Bryant of the California Native Plant Society will premiere on Earth Day at the Warner Grand Theater in San Pedro, California at 7 p.m. The creative production team are subsequently releasing the film at international film festivals and with plant organizations across the country and in Mexico. If you and your regional organization are interested in hosting a show, and panel discussion around saging the world, please contact the California Native Plant Society, which you will find online at cnps.org. All proceeds from the documentary will be reinvested into the advocacy work of saging the world. CNPS is additionally dedicating their spring issue of Flora to the biology, cultivation of, and native history and relationship with white sage. The issue is guest edited by Rose Ramirez and Deborah Small, graphic design by Tima Lota Link, articles contributed by native writers from across California and Baja California. Join us again next week when we head east in conversation with scientist, home gardener, and podcaster Natasha Manchanda of the Indian Edit podcast, who follows the inspiring growth, work, and lives of the Indian diaspora. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. For more information and many images and graphics from the work of Rose Ramirez, Deborah Small, and Saging the World, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's show notes under the podcast tab. That's all at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.